Hello, everyone. It's Josh Ling here. Welcome to Epping Presbyterian Church again. I'd like to begin this week with a slightly embarrassing personal story. And so here we go, my confession of a parenting fail. At the beginning of last year, I thought it was about time to take my children's theological education to the next level. Um, Sean and Trinity were about to start Arden, which was really, really exciting. Now, I have no idea what high schoolers in a Christian school do or talk about, but I imagine that it would be a great place where they discuss and grapple with the big theological and ethical issues in life, you know, issues that are often controversial. And so I wanted to give Sean and Trinity a framework to help them navigate these complex issues. I remember starting with Sean and I said, Son, there is this one word that I'm going to teach you that is going to change your life and the way you see the world. And the word is eschaton. You should have seen the incredulous look on my son's face when I told him the word. It's a look that basically says, are you kidding me? Now, yes, I know that eschaton is a jargon. It's a Greek word. It means the end of the human history. Uh, and at that point in time, I really thought that my relationship with my son was going to end at that point in time. But it's really, really important for me at that time, for Sean and Trinity and basically for everyone who is listening to the sermon to understand the eschaton at the end of human history. From the word eschaton, we get the word eschatology, which is about the study of the end of history in our world. I don't think Sean has ever forgiven me for that particular lesson, but he did learn an impressive word. Every now and again, he would gleefully insert the word into our family conversations uh, to remind me of the intellectual pain I inflicted on him, this poor pastor's kid. Seriously though, eschatology is important, really, really important. This is a two-part sermon based on our studies in Revelation. This week and next week, we'll be looking at the end of Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. Let me pray. Father, we are bound by time, but you are eternal. Your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts higher than our thoughts. Teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Help me now to preach so that I might speak a word in season for your people here at Epping, that in these troubled times we might find a voice of hope in your gospel message. Amen. Eschatology is really, really important because everything about the ministry of Jesus is eschatological. That's my first point for this sermon. In other words, the ministry of Jesus is moving history to its desired end. Even now, we are witnessing history being moved by Jesus according to how it's going to be. Already in this sermon, we've seen that Jesus was cast in the image of Yahweh, the divine warrior king, marching into battle. I mean, already in Revelation chapter 19. And in chapter 19, the heavens were shouting, Hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. The nations have been gathered for battle. The nations were one group uh, that has received the mark of Satan and they've been gathered by Satan to oppose Jesus. On the other hand, there is another group of people who have been called out by the world 
and they have received the seal of the Lamb, and they are following Jesus into battle. The entire scene here in Revelation chapter 19 uh, and the way that Jesus was cast as the divine warrior really reminds us of the concept of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is the day when Yahweh visits his people, uh, both for salvation and for judgment. There are many passages in the Old Testament that speaks about the day of the Lord. I will just highlight two. And as I read them, you will find the language familiar, the concepts familiar, because we've, we've been covering them in the book of Revelation. The first passage is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. In this passage, we see that on the day of the Lord, everything about humanity will be humbled and only the Lord is exalted. Isaiah 2.11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The second passage is taken from the, past, the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. And here we see the picture of multitudes and multitudes being gathered together by God. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Everything about Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of the day of the Lord coming to his people. The language that Jesus used when he arrived is that the kingdom of God is near. That phrase is the New Testament's equivalent of the day of the Lord. It is the phrase that carries so much eschatological expectations. Jesus came and preached in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Everything about the ministry of Jesus is eschatological. Jesus' life, his death, and most importantly, his resurrection are all tied up with the fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And that's the day when the multitudes are gathered together in the valley of decision. And it's not human decision we're talking about here. This is God's decision. On that day, God's going to judge and decide between humanity, he's going to separate the sheep from the goat, as we've read in other parts of the gospel. And so here back in chapter 19, as we read on from chapter, seven, uh, chapter 19 verse 7 onwards, we notice more similarities in the language of the Old Testament. So for example, in Ezekiel chapter 39, notice the similarities between the sacrificial feast of Ezekiel and the great supper of God here in the New Testament in Revelation 19. Reading from Ezekiel 39, verse 17 to 20. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to the bees of, every, of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around uh, to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat bees of Bashan. 
and you shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. Therefore, what we read of in Revelation 19, verse 17 to 21, is similar to what Ezekiel had already prophesied. And it follows the description of Jesus as the divine warrior king who is bringing on the day of the Lord. Therefore, Jesus is bringing the history of the world to its rightful end. Everything about the ministry of Jesus is eschatological. His birth, his life, his death, and especially his resurrection, which we will focus on next Sunday. But for now, we note that the day of the Lord is the day when all of our human achievement will be humbled, according to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11. In the end, the pride of man, everything that we're so proud of, our scientific achievement, our technological advancement, our universities, they're all towers of Babel, and they have been brought down. Only God alone is exalted. Fallen, fallen indeed is Babylon the great. This week we witness a proud nation brought to its knees because like so many nations at this point in time, a virus has conquered its borders. And also, in spite of its military power, it hasn't solved the problem of the sinful human heart. The people are still gripped by division according to race. I'm referring, of course, to the nation of the United States. The late Reformed theologian James Montgomery Boyce wrote a chapter on eschatology that is still relevant today, and it proves to be the word in season for us. He said that our eschatology he said that our eschatological conviction should shape our current concern for social issues. He wrote about the racial crisis in the United States in the early 1960s in a little chapter called The End of History in his Systematic Theology. He said there was a restaurant in Decatur, Georgia, that had two signs hung on its wall during the time of the racial crisis in the 1960s. The first sign was biblical and eschatological. It says, Jesus is coming again. And the second sign hung directly below it said something totally different. It said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. The unspoken text implied in the sign is that people of color would not be welcome in this restaurant. James Montgomery boys laughed at this sign because it's actually quite funny. Jesus was a person of color. He might actually be turned away in this very restaurant when he returns. So eschatology is important and it must inform how we live our lives now. This week, unfortunately, we are witnessing a repeat of the racial tension in American history. It's the perfect storm in many parts of the world. Here in Australia, it's Reconciliation Week. In China, it's the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident. People are affected by what's happening in the world, especially what's happening in the United States. And unfortunately, the Bible was drawn into the conflict in an unhelpful manner this week. Just like the two conflicting signs in the decayed restaurant, the Bible was held out as a sign of one message, but it conflicted with another public sign, the sign of a man whose public image really shows contempt for the values of the Bible. 
It's no wonder that our younger generation mocks the Christian faith. How ironic then to note that in Revelation 19, it is the word of God that brings the final victory against Satan's army. Have a look at verse 21. And the rest of the army of Satan were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I wonder if Donald Trump is aware that the book that he was holding in his hand will be the book that he's going to be judged with and held accountable by. Everything about Jesus is eschatological. Jesus is bringing history to its rightful end by the preaching of the word. Again, come with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So firstly, we need to repent because there is a danger that we think that racism only exists in America. We all know that that's not true. Jesus is calling everyone everywhere to repent of our human arrogance. On the day of the Lord, all humankind, regardless of our nationality, will be humbled before the one true Lord and King, Jesus himself. We repent. And then we need to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus because we are already living in the end times. Everything about Jesus is eschatological. Jesus lived and brought history to its rightful end. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised by what we are seeing and reading in the world today. It's all part of the Great Tribulation. So firstly, everything about the ministry of Jesus is eschatological. Secondly, Jesus warned that in the last days, the believers will suffer because of their testimony for Jesus. During the week, I gave the growth groups the opportunity to ask questions about the passage. And most of the questions that came back was about the millennium, the 1,000 years. Someone wanted to know what is the difference between pre-millennium, post-millennium, and a-millennium teachings about the end times. It does get more complicated because within pre-millennium teaching, there are further subdivisions depending on when people believe the Great Tribulation took place. Someone else wanted to know why Satan was released after being bound for 1,000 years. Now these are really difficult questions to answer in a short time. More importantly, I believe that these questions distract from the main message of the passage. Again, I found James Montgomery Boy's little chapter on the end of history really, really helpful. He said that we need to begin by acknowledging that Christians are not in full agreement about the details of these future events. He wrote, They disagree about the millennium, a period of 1,000 years during which Jesus is to reign upon the earth. Some see this as a specific future period, some as symbolic of the age of the church in which we are now living. Even among those who accept the millennium as a specific future period, there are differences as to where it fits in with other events spoken about in the Bible. What tends to be lost in the awareness of such differences, however, is the large agreement that exists, plus the fact that the areas in which Christians are agreed are the most important. End of quote. In other words, according to James, don't focus on the things that we speculate about because the Bible doesn't give all the answers. 
but instead focus on the things which have general agreement among all Christians. And these things are, firstly, Christ will return. Secondly, there will be a resurrection of the body. And thirdly, there will be a final judgment by God of everyone in the world. And that's what we Presbyterians believe. So whether you are a premillennial believer, as in you believe that the second coming of Jesus precedes the 1,000 years, or a post-millennium believer, believing that the second coming of Jesus comes after the 1,000 years, or a millennium believer, because it really is not the main focus here, we need to acknowledge that there are differences here. But in my view, a millennium teaching is closer to the truth. As to why the devil was released again after 1,000 years, again, this is a mystery that we are not told about. Calling it a mystery acknowledges that there are things in God's plan and purpose that we do not fully comprehend. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can never fully understand or even question what the Creator God does. Instead, we can trust that God must have His reasons and they would be just. I want to do a little better in this sermon than just to quote an expert and say, we don't really know about the details. Because I believe that if we look carefully at Matthew 24, which is the text about the Great Tribulation, we discover that Jesus himself doesn't want his disciples to be sidetracked by trying to figure out exactly how and when the ending is going to come. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 24, and we will finish part one of the sermon here. So here's the context behind Matthew 24. Jesus had just spoken about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the physical temple itself, the sort of thing that humankind tends to take pride in. And the disciples came to Jesus after being in awe of the temple and hearing Jesus said that these will all be destroyed. They came to Jesus privately and asked him when these things were going to happen. They were curious. Jesus replied, reading from verse, uh, chapter two, uh, Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, for the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of, the, of birth pains. Friends, is not this what we hear and read about every day for now? That's why I think it's more, it makes more sense to think of this period of tribulation as something that is generic and is happening right now. And Jesus warns them of the suffering that every believer must undergo for him. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so this is where I'm heading uh, in the second half of the sermon. I believe that our focus should be on Jesus. Everything about Jesus is eschatological. 
His resurrection from the dead inaugurate His reign for the whole world as the Messiah. Those who are in Jesus Christ have begun to reign with Him. I believe that the martyrs referred to in Revelation 20 is referring to all Christians, or at least all Christians need to expect persecution for their faith in the end times, if we are alive in that period. I believe that all Christians are part of the first resurrection because we are part of Jesus Christ, who is the first to be raised. Therefore, this means that the second resurrection, regardless of the time period, will be a general resurrection for the rest of humanity, and they will be judged by a fair God according to what they have done. But Christians will be spared that judgment because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will make my case further next Sunday, so please hold your questions until I have a chance to make my case next week. For now, let me summarize our learning as such. Firstly, I will keep trying to explain to my children why eschatology is important. That's because that's a truth that we can't put on hold until we get older or when we are forced to attend a funeral or when we receive a diagnosis we don't want to hear from the doctor. See, unfortunately, the only time our society thinks about the eschaton, the end times, is when we are confronted by death. We shouldn't put this teaching off until later because how we think about the end affects how we're going to live now. I wonder if there are people who are delaying the decision for Christ because they want to know when the end will come. The way we want to know when is the due date for an application submission. Friends, it doesn't work like this. Right? We can't see that the end is drawing near and then decide to put our application form in to be the followers of Jesus. You don't apply to be a citizen of heaven like a citizenship test. You have to be called and convicted to be a citizen of heaven. Today is as good as any other day. If you are not convinced now that Jesus is Lord and King, you are not going to be convinced later. Secondly, let's not get too sidetracked by signs and wonders of the end of days. Let's not try and work out when it's going to happen and try and put it on a time grid. If you're already a follower of Jesus, then you would know that Jesus would want you to focus on him instead. But again, I wonder if there are indeed people who are exploring the Christian faith, who are listening to this sermon, and perhaps who are feeling agnostic about all of this. You're just not sure, and you really don't want to commit until you have all the facts. I understand that. However, sometimes we don't have all the facts in a world. We're not going to have this is as good as it's going to get. But I also wonder whether in the end it's about our pride and our need for control. The day of the Lord is a day when all human pride and control will be taken away and the Lord Jesus himself will be, will be exalted. Everything about Jesus is eschatological. Jesus brings all our human history to its end. Remember when Jesus asked the question right, in Luke chapter 9, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That is an eschatological question. That is eschatological thinking. Make your choices now based on what you know is going to end. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to say that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Peter and John were blessed to see Jesus transfigured in his glory in the later half of this segment. But it's a reminder that eschatology matters because we are all dying. The question we need to ask is, how do I become part of the first resurrection? How do I belong to Jesus and be a part of him? God bless and we will chat again next week. <music> 